in the first part of the chorus, it says that he is more than life to me. And that that's actually uh, something that's very much, that whole concept is very much part of uh, the passage of Scripture that we're reading today. So how about that? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Good morning once again to you. And, and, and turn to Philippians chapter 2. That rhymes. Just pointing it out. Okay. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19. Praise the Lord, right? Let's bow before the Lord and pray together. And then I'd like to read some of this for you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice that we can have this time together to uh, consider your word now. We pray, Lord, that as we read and as we just study and, and, and listen, I know it's only my voice, Lord, that is heard in the room, but we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word in the inner man, Lord God, as your word teaches us that the spirit teaches us, Lord God. And so I pray that the things that I say would just really just be a tool for you and that all of us together, Lord, would be studying and, and, and observing together and, and learning these things. And then we pray that you would give us strength and courage and wisdom to put these things into practice in our lives. Thank you for all of my friends and all of our visitors here today. And, and Lord God, I pray that as we've sung about so much already today, and Lord, I pray that if anyone is here today, Lord, who needs that salvation that we speak of and sing of and pray about all the time and preach about, I pray, Lord God, that today might be the day that someone for the first time in their life puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experiences just the receiving of your salvation and the receiving of your Holy Spirit and the bliss and the joy and the freedom that comes with that, Lord God. And I pray for all of us, Lord, who know you, that we would be a little more encouraged today to live our lives holy and humble and devoted to your service. We pray you'd forgive us of our sins. We pray that you'd help us to love one another. And Lord, that we would uh, listen to your word and be instructed in your ways now. For your glory. Yes, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2. The only little introduction that I'll give you before I read it is that it's not, I don't know quite the right way to say this, but it's not like a heavy theological passage. It's one of the passages of Scripture that makes the book of Philippians such a joy to read. Because really all he does in these two paragraphs is writes to the Philippian church to talk to them about two people that are familiar to them, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was, was one of them. And Timothy, of course, was Paul's right-hand man, so it seems. And so Paul writes to them, and as he writes this, 
It's not so much he's laying out the theology of the gospel here or anything like that. He's writing and just commending these two brothers and their service to the Lord and how the Philippian church ought to feel about that and how they ought to respond to them. The, the, the value of it for the Christian is not just to read and know the history that it is. The value of it for the Christian is that it is an example of service. So I titled the sermon, Exemplary Servants. There are things, characteristics of these two guys, these two brothers, that are things that we can all pursue in prayer and things for ourselves and for each other. All things that we can emulate. I say that with some trepidation and and with the highest respect for the Lord himself because our great example in all things is Jesus, right? But we certainly believe this letter to be breathed by God, inspired by God. And here is Paul putting forth the example of two brothers in the Lord and how they served and how it is commendable. And so while we don't want to like look at flesh for a long period of time, here are two brothers who love the Lord and their lives are an example. As you're counting examples, this is the fourth one you see in this chapter. The first example is the supreme one, which is Jesus, right? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's the great example of humility. Then Paul, like the verses we considered last week, sort of puts himself forth as a little bit of an example of selfless service now we read about Timothy and Epaphroditus and, and hopefully find some things for our own Christian walk that we can learn from them. Here we go. Let's read. Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, but not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because... For the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life. How's that go? 
He is more than life to me. Right? Yeah, we just sang about that, right? That's, that, was, that, was, that was like the hymn of, of Epaphroditus' heart. Jesus was more than life to him, almost literally. Because of the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So there you have it. Two examples of brothers who were close to the Apostle Paul and how the Lord used them. The first is very familiar to us, Timothy. We know Timothy well because he seems to pop up everywhere that Paul is when you read through the book of Acts, when you read uh, the letters that Paul writes to other churches, and perhaps most notably, Timothy has two letters addressed to him himself uh, in the New Testament. We've talked about Timothy many, many times over the years, and so we get to have a little look at him again today. And then, of course, the second guy is Epaphroditus, who we know less about and really is only mentioned here in the book of Philippians. There is a, another fellow in the Bible whose name is Epaphras, and Epaphras is like a, a, a shortened version of Epaphroditus. You can, uh, you can understand that. Epaphroditus has five syllables. That's a long first name, right? Any, I, there are, anyone have five syllables in their first name? Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus. Maximiliano. That's, uh, 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 that's six, right? Wow. And what do we call you? Max. That's the point. See, if, if Epaphroditus was born in 2019, we would call him Path. That's what I think. We'd be like, yo, Path. Or, or we'd call him E-Train or something like that. Right? But anyway, the Epaphras, the Epaphras, who is in the book of Colossians and in the book of Philemon, some of the older traditions, I think, like in the, uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church and things like that, they, they try to sort of mesh the two uh, into one person. But it seems most likely to me, not that I'm any great historian or scholar, but it seems most likely to me, since uh, Colossae is in Asia Minor and Philippi is in Macedonia in Europe, that Epaphras and Epaphroditus are probably not the same person, according to what I researched and read. It was a very common name um, in, in those days. So here we have Epaphroditus, and he is part of the Philippian church originally. But first, before we talk about him, let's talk about Timothy a, a little bit here, right? So Paul says, you get, you get some of the logistic details in here too of Paul's imprisonment and kind of where he's at. I like to I like to make note of those as we go through. It's good to be able to put the New Testament narrative together a little bit. So Paul says, I trust, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. And when he talks about their state, he's talking about their spiritual well-being. Paul cares about the spiritual well-being of the Philippian church. And so what he wants to do is dispatch Timothy to send him there so Timothy can leave Paul's side in Rome and go back to Philippi, search out what the spiritual state of the Philippian church is. I mean, he expects that it's going to be very good based on the way this letter is written, right? And then he wants Timothy to come back to him and make a report. But he can't send Timothy yet. Because at the end of this paragraph, in verse 29, what does he say? He says, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. 
And we've talked about that verse already. Paul is in prison, and Paul, being a prisoner of Rome, and knowing that he had been accused by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, which was part of the Roman Empire at the time, Paul made an appeal to Rome, which is why he's in Rome. Paul was a Roman citizen. So even though he was a Jew, he was a Roman citizen. He had a right to make an appeal to Caesar to hear his case. And that's why he's in Rome. And he is Caesar's prisoner in Rome at the time that he writes this. But he doesn't know how it's going to go. And he is, as we've studied before, Paul is completely deferring to God's will, to the sovereignty of God. And that's why he says, you know, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but I want to see how things go with me here first. It's like he's waiting to make sure Timothy has something to tell them about Paul before he goes. And you can see in verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So Paul's understanding, Paul's expectation was that he was going to survive this imprisonment, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't tempting the Lord or, or, or just kind of boastfully speaking, stepping outside of deferring to God's will. If God's will was for him to survive the imprisonment, praise the Lord, that's kind of what he expected. But as we already read in some of the previous verses, he was torn as to what was better. Is it better for me to die and then go and be with the Lord? Or is it better for me to stay so I can be a blessing to you, right? So that's kind of some of the logistics there. So because Paul wanted to communicate with them, but was not ready to send Timothy to them, what did he do? He sent Epaphroditus back to them. And we know from the context of the letter that Epaphroditus is one of them. He's a, Epaphroditus is originally from Philippi, probably the leader in the uh, Philippian church, or one of the leaders of the Philippian church. I'll explain when we get over to, uh, to verse 25 um, why I say that. But uh, Epaphroditus, you can tell from the context of this section, was someone who had become sick. And this is a good example of what? It's a good example of how all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Um, listen to this. Who thinks it's a good thing for someone to get sick and almost die? Probably no one, right? I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to any of you. However, the Lord used it for good. How, do you, how so? Epaphroditus was sick. The Lord was merciful to him and spared him. Paul knew that the Philippian church had heard that Epaphroditus was sick and they were worried about him. And so what Paul did was he sent Epaphroditus back, which prompted what? The writing of the letter that you have in front of you. So it was actually in a circumstantial way, the sickness of Epaphroditus that prompts the Apostle Paul to write this letter and send it with Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church. So you and I, listen to this now, put it all together. You, this, is, this is like, this is the Bible narrative and how God used circumstances to bring this out. You have statements like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And all these famous statements that are in the book of Philippians, you have them written down and delivered to the Philippian church because Epaphroditus got sick. 
right? And the Lord granted that he recovered. And so Paul knew they were worried about him. So he sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi and, oh yeah, wrote this letter to them and said in the letter, I want to send Timothy too, but I want to see how it goes with me first. But here's Epaphroditus and all this other stuff that goes along with it. So isn't that cool? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I know you're thinking Lou thought way too much about all this, but no, I don't think so. That's that's the way that it works. God uses even difficult circumstances to bring about his will. We're still reading a letter. To, it's a letter. It's a letter. We're still reading a letter 2,000 years later that was breathed by God himself because God used these difficult circumstances to prompt the Apostle Paul to write the letter to begin with. Cool? I think that's great. I, I, I think that's great. All right. So there's sort of the uh, the roadmap. There's sort of the uh, the historical narrative of the New Testament portion of the sermon. Now let's get into what it really says. So in verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy shortly. It says two things now in this paragraph about Timothy. Paul's written many wonderful things and said many wonderful things about Timothy and other places in Scripture. But there's there's basically two important points here that I think we can look at as examples of Christian service that would be very good for us to pray to the Lord for ourselves and for each other and to ask the Lord to help these things be true in us, right? And of course, it goes... It probably goes without saying and shouldn't, and so I'll say it, that Paul is speaking here to Christians. The letter is for Christians. The letter is addressed to people who have the same faith in Christ that Paul did. People who knew that God was real. People who knew that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. They knew he was holy. And they knew that all the world owed him everything and was accountable to him. People who knew that, and they recognized that in their own sins, there was nothing they could do to save or justify themselves, but they recognized the beauty and the love and the grace and the opportunity, the chance that God gives through what he did by sacrificing Jesus, his son. And they have put their faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And they are not trusting in themselves. They're not trusting in religious pedigree. They're not trusting in anything other than that Jesus, the Son of God, died for their sins and rose from the dead. And as a result, because of their faith, God has justified them before himself. He has, God has literally taken the righteousness of Jesus Christ and credited it to those who believed and trusted in Jesus' name. That is the only way for a person to be reconciled to God. It is the only way for a person to be saved. To put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's who this stuff is written to. I want to make sure you understand that. Paul isn't writing these things and telling the whole world, here's how you ought to live. No, Paul is writing to people who have faith in Christ and telling them, here's how a person who has faith in Christ ought to live. Important distinction? Yes, I think so. So make sure you got that. If you need Christ, 
Come to Christ. You know what the good news is? Well, there's a lot of things I could say to follow up to that, but here's one example of good news. Your response to Christ doesn't involve me. It doesn't involve the church. It doesn't involve any religious ceremony. It doesn't involve any works. It doesn't involve any sacraments. Listen, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Say, you're sitting there right now. You're listening to this right now. If you need Christ, you need do nothing other than turn to him inside you. Turn to him with all of your heart and believe. And the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Right? You don't need to wait for some religious thing to happen or anything like that. You've heard the news. Believe it. You've heard the gospel. Believe it. That what do you mean? That's it? Yes. I'm not, and you know what? You may think that sounds simplistic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It, that gospel is God's power to save people, to everyone who believes, Jews, Gentiles, whoever. Rich, poor, old, young, every race, every economic status, every nation on the earth. Receive Christ, and then this letter is for you. Receiving him. Receive Jesus and be saved. Receive him. Believe on him and be saved. I sang that in one of the songs. Believe him without delay and you'll be fully blessed. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you now. Hallelujah. The first thing that Paul says, after he says, I, I want to send Timothy to you because I want to be encouraged when I know where you're at spiritually. I want to know your state. The first thing he says is in verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Right? And so what is it, what is it that he says there? Well, when he says, I have no one like-minded, careful how you, you read that. It, it could be taken reading in the, in the maybe a little bit wooden language of the New King James Version that the Apostle Paul is saying that there is nobody else who like thinks the same way as him or anything like that. What he's doing is, is he's setting Timothy apart. He's talking about Timothy and basically saying, I've got no one else like him. You know, and he had obviously other servants. It's a, it's a manner of speaking. He's, he's, he's setting Timothy up as a good example for them. Obviously, he has other people who he trusts because he talks about Epaphroditus right after this, right? So when he says, uh, when he says, I have no one like-minded, he's talking about, I don't have anyone in my life, in my ministry who I trust more to send to you to care for your spiritual state, and then to bring back word to me about how things are going, right? What a good report to have said about you, right? That what? That he what? I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care 
for your spiritual state. For all seek their own, but not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Right? Here's the exemplary thing in Timothy. What, Tim, what Paul could say about Timothy was, he cares about the spiritual welfare of these people so much that there is no one that I trust more to send to care for these people. There is a complete devotion to Christ in all of this. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now, I just draw your attention at that moment to what? You don't have to go back very far. Go back to chapter 4, or back to verse 4 of this chapter. And, and, and what, did, what did Paul just get done saying to them? Just back up to verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of what? Others. Right? And we talked about last week how Paul himself was an example of that. We talked about how even spiritually and emotionally and mentally and completely in every way that is useful and beneficial to you to look out for the interest of others as well as it blesses others as well as it exalts the name of Jesus. If everybody cares for themselves, well, where's the love in that? Where's the glorying of God in that? But if everybody looks out for the interests of everybody else, there's so much benefit in that. If everyone looks out for the interests of everybody else, then everybody else gets cared for. And that that interplay between people, when observed by others, glorifies God. You see? And so here, what he says about Timothy is what? He says, I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state Timothy really loves you in all sincerity. He cares about the spiritual welfare of you folks. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. That statement, for all seek their own, I'll admit that there's enough ambiguity there where there might be a couple of ways that you could take that. Obviously, Paul meant one thing when he said that, but I just want to be honest with you about that that like just reading it 2,000 years later, when he says all seek their own, it could be a figure of speech where he's just comparing Timothy to other people. And Timothy, in comparison to the other believers that he knows, just seems like one who really cares about the Lord and doesn't care about himself at all. Or it could be a, a bit of rebuke concerning the state of Christianity already in Paul's day. In other words, in Paul's day, he was, he had been in ministry enough and had made enough converts, if you will, and established enough churches and had traveled around enough and had had enough fellowship with other Christians. Even though Christianity is, is brand new, it's only a few decades old at this point, a couple of decades old, but there was enough there were enough churches and enough fellowship going on that the Apostle Paul observed, man, there are a lot of people in these churches who only seem to care about themselves. Well, maybe that's what he meant. But if you fast forward 2,000 years, I think it's probably safe to say that that's a point that we should all examine ourselves in. 
when you enter into a body, when you begin to fellowship with a body, when you become a member of a church, when you begin to participate in the ministries of a church, when you get to know the people of a church and associate with them, even outside of the the established ministries of that church, and all of that is encouraged, all of that is encouraged, when you begin to do that, is it because you have an agenda? Is it because you're in it for yourself? Is it because you want to look and see what aspects of what's going on please you and participate in those, but then withhold yourself from other things? Now look, nobody can do everything. We all have gifts and we're supposed to use our spiritual gifts to edify the body. And what we don't want to do is get involved in doing things that I don't really have a gift for, but other people do, and then kind of block them, right? So it's not just, it's not just an encouragement to just go and go and go and go and go and do and do and do and do and do, so you burn yourself out. But the idea is, when you enter into a church like the Philippian church, a church like Fellowship Bible Church, you ought to enter into it with a spirit that says, what can I do to serve and what can I do to like bless other people around me? Some of that comes in the form of established ministry of the church itself, but probably most of that simply comes in the form of, in an informal kind of way, that contradictory in the form of informally? That might, that might have been a... Well, you know what I'm talking about. You, you have uh, just getting to know people and having the opportunity to bless them and encourage them to care about them, listen, spiritually. We are, above all things, a body of people that ought to care about, listen, one another's relationship with God more than anything else. You ought to care and then say and do things that encourage and facilitate your brothers and sisters seeking God. Yes, we should care for one another's material needs. Yes, we should care about other facets of people's lives. But we have to be careful to remember primarily what we're here for. That is to worship God, worship Christ, and make Him known in our generation. And to encourage believers to be edified and to grow in their faith as we walk with Him. As I tell you, and I've recently told you many times, the most indispensable thing that any Christian has is his personal walk with the Lord. Now listen to me. My personal walk with the Lord involves me sitting sometimes for long periods of time and reading my Bible and spending time praying alone. But did you know that for all of that, I am part of a body of believers, this local church, and I'm part of the worldwide body of believers, all Christians everywhere, we're all one, right? And everything that I do and everything that I say has some spiritual effect on my brothers and sisters. I don't want to be a discouragement to them, right? I want to be an encouragement. That's why I want to enter in. That's why I want to contribute. That's why I want to be around. 
That's why I want to participate. I know that for every single one of you sitting here in this room, every single one of you, without exception, there is no alternative to this at all. If you are in Christ, your relationship with God is as strong as the amount of time and the amount of sincere seeking of him that you do. No one seeks after God before they're a Christian, but once we've come to the Lord and we've been saved, our whole life becomes about seeking him. Right? And we're told that he's the rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. And I want my participation and my fellowship and my association with my brothers and sisters to encourage them to do that because that's the most important, most indispensable thing. I care about your spiritual state. And we ought to care about one another's spiritual states. Your spiritual state is measured best by the personal relationship with God that you have and how much you seek Him. And all the people around the room, that's true for every other one, and how you participate, how you contribute, how you talk, how you speak, what you do when you're here, what you do when you're not here, how you associate with one another. I'm telling you, it has an effect on the encouragement or discouragement of people and how much they seek the Lord. We don't exist as Christians in isolation. You may try, but the spiritual reality is something different. And oh, there is a place like we saw in Micah, right? We saw in Micah chapter 7 last Thursday night. Micah was obviously aghast over the spiritual state of his nation and said what? But I am going to seek the Lord because I know that one day God is going to turn this thing around. So there comes a time for the person to say, you know what? Even if no one else does, I'm going to seek the Lord. Even if you people, as Joshua said, even if every one of you turns away, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there comes that, that, that time and that place occasionally. But listen, the norm for Christians is you're part of a body and we are to encourage each other and to pray for one another. This is what is said about Timothy. You see it? I have no one like-minded, he says. I have, there's no one else like him who will sincerely care for your state. Ah, hey, this letter was going to reach the Philippian church before Timothy did. What a great, what a great announcement and a great calling card that is. To have a letter from the Apostle Paul show up and say, Timothy's on his way and I don't got anyone else like him. Because when he comes to you, he's going to sincerely care about your spiritual state. I read that and what I say to myself is, that's how I want to be. I want to sincerely care for my brothers and sisters' spiritual state. And I want to see my brothers and sisters in the church sincerely care for one another's spiritual state. There is a complete devotion to Christ when he says, for all, notice the word for in the beginning of verse 21. That means the word for means he's giving a reason why he just said what he said. So the statement in verse 21 is attached to the statement of verse 20. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. The implication is that Timothy wasn't like that. Timothy did not just seek his own. Timothy sought the things that were of Christ Jesus. He cared about their spiritual state. And so Paul was like, I'm going to send him to you so that when he comes back and tells me how you guys are, I will be encouraged. And when he comes, he will care for you. Because I don't got anyone else who's like him. Isn't that great? Hey, 
even, even if not every single thing I just said totally resonated or whatever, and I hope it did, can I just ask you this? Don't you want to be part of that? Don't you want your Christianity to be like that? Or do you want your Christianity to just be, you know, show up at church on Sunday and, and, then, you know, and, then, and then there's just like nothing else, you know? No, no meaningful contact, no meaningful association, no meaningful fellowship. We all want that, but none of us gets that unless every one of us puts it forth. Understand? Nobody gets encouraged if nobody encourages. See, that, that's why I got the job, right? Because I'm so smart and I can figure out things like that. The master of the self-evident I am, right? If nobody encourages, nobody gets encouraged. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Listen, the commitment to be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters, if every one of us makes that, guess what? We're all going to see the spiritual states of one another lifted, elevated. Determine in your heart to be someone like Timothy, who is all about promoting the spiritual well-being of your brethren. The things I say, the things I do, they have an effect on my brothers and sisters' walk with God. Jesus knew that. That's why he said it would be better if a millstone was cast around someone's neck and they were thrown into the sea, that that would be better for them than to make one of these little ones of mine stumble. What's he talking about? He's talking about the person's spiritual well-being and the relationship with God being caused to stumble by someone else's action. Serious offense. Our words and our actions, if they are dragging people spiritually down and discouraging them to the point where they don't want to serve God, that is a serious offense. And Paul says of Timothy, here comes the guy who's got it figured out. Here comes the guy whose grace God is all over. He will come and he will care for you. Let's be that. Let's determine here today to be that to each other. Can we do that? Are we allowed to do that? Yeah, we are. Yes, of course. That's exactly right. Do that. Encourage by how... Determine that by how you prioritize and how you speak and how you act that you're going to be an encouragement to the spiritual state of other people. Next thing he says about Timothy is what? But you know his proven character. Notice that it doesn't say you know his character. You know his character, right? You know, you know what he's like. No, it says you know his proven character. What is somebody's character? Somebody's character, it's like, it's like he's talking about the reputation that they have for who, who, in Timothy's case, in who he is as a man. So when he talks about his proven character, he's talking about things in his life that are tangibly observable that reveal who he really is on the inside. 
When we talk about integrity, what are we talking about? When we talk about integrity, we're talking about what a person purports to be matches up with what they actually do. And we would say that if a person markets himself or publicly promotes himself to be such and such, but then when they talk in private or in public, when they speak, when they act, if it's different, we would say that that person has an integrity problem. Right? Timothy, we see, is someone of proven character. That is to say, of Timothy, there are things in his life that you can observe that show he is of a high, godly Christian character. And that is something that we all want to be. How is that found? Is that found by just deciding to do this and do that and do this and do that? May I say to you, it all goes back to the same thing. There is nothing more indispensable to a Christian than the time that they spend alone with the Lord. If you walk closely with God, God, the didn't we just say that he works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure? Right? We're supposed to work it out. We're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one that works in us, right? That was earlier in this chapter. If we will walk closely with Lord, the Lord, the Lord, by the power of his spirit, by the power of the surgeon's scalpel, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he will mold and shape and form your character. And as you seek him more and more and more and purpose in your heart to be a doer of his word and not only a hearer, you know what will happen? What will flow out of you are words and actions that will prove that the Lord is at work in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches, Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. And so what? Abide in me. Abide in Christ. And he will form in the inner man, in the inner woman, who you are. And as you walk with him more and more, he will bring out of you, as you work it out with fear and trembling, he will bring out of you deeds and words that show what you really are. We live in a marketing age. We live in a promotional age. We live in the Twitter world. We live in the Snapchat world. We live in the Facebook world. Where you can literally create someone completely different from who you really are and display that to the world as who you are. That's not proven character. That's fake. What's real is that what you do shows who you are. And what you do comes forth as a Christian, not from our own strength or our own initiative, but it comes forth from that time spent alone with the Lord. Listen, if there is a famine of anything in the modern Christian church, I would say, it is a famine of Christians authentically seeking the Lord and having that, those words and works flow out of them that are a product of just the close personal relationship with God that they have. Because we live in the Twitter, the Twitter-verse. Is that what they call it? Nobody's answering me, so probably not. So, so we live there 
and we get sucked into it and we buy into it and we sit and we stare and maybe we enter into the fray. It's not what God's looking for. What God is looking for are people who abide in the vine and then walk through their lives simply doing the things that he brings out of them because they walk so closely with him. Timothy was such a man. Paul was able to announce by letter from a distance, not even fully knowing if he would ever see these people face to face again. Paul was able to announce before Timothy himself even showed up by a letter, you know his proven character. Christian, seek the Lord with all your heart while he may be found, that you may have a life of integral Christian service. I mean, Timothy's proven character is shown in what? He says, you know his proven character, look at this, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. There's two, two distinct evidences of Timothy's proven character shown there. Two distinct evidences. The first one was his loyalty to Paul. He served him as a son serves with his father. Right? Timothy was a pretty formidable servant of God of his own, but he never got too big for his britches, as they say. Right? He served as a son with his father. And what did he serve in? He served in the gospel. What does that mean, that he served them in the gospel? That means the work of preaching the gospel and making disciples, establishing little, church, little, little uh, Christian communities, churches we call them. Timothy was faithful in that. Listen, these are the kinds of things that we ought to be committed to. Loyalty to spiritual, God-fearing brothers and sisters like Timothy was to Paul, like a son to a father. A commitment to what really matters, which is the work of the gospel, right? That proved what? It proved that Timothy was one of a godly character. And this is why Paul, in the first point, was able to say, I've got no one else like him. No one is like-minded. Everyone else cares about themselves, not this guy. This guy served with me in the gospel like a son does with his father. Complete devotion to the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul can say with all confidence, writing a letter that would arrive before Timothy does, not knowing if he himself would ever be able to see them again, I'm sending you Timothy. Okay? This is, and you know what, as I said in the beginning of the service, I shred lightly because I know I'm talking about men. And the one that we really glory in is the Lord. But can I just rest, put to rest any concerns you may have about that by reminding you, this is all the work of Christ that is being done in these guys and through these guys. So look, yes, yes, look at the example that the Word of God presents of these people and say, Lord, please help me to be like this. Go to verse 25. I, I, have, I have discussed verses 23 and 24 already today and in previous weeks. So go right to verse 25. Let's talk about the other fellow here. I've already identified to him to you, but what does he say? In Timothy, we saw, number one, 
a care, a sincere care for their spiritual state, which is what we ought to be, caring about one another spiritually. And number two, we saw his proven character, who he was on the inside, who he was that Paul said he was, was proven by what was observable in his words and in his actions. There was integrity there. Now we come to the other guy, Epaphroditus. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. So Paul wanted to send Timothy. He wasn't ready to send Timothy yet because Timothy wanted to wait and see how things were going to go with himself first. But he needed to send Epaphroditus right away because he knew the Philippian church had heard that he was sick and they were concerned about him. He was concerned about them. So Paul was like, oh, I better send Epaphroditus now and I'm going to write this letter and Epaphroditus, you're going to take it back to the Philippian church. And we already went over how cool that is. Yet, but he says here three things, three things. He describes three ways Epaphroditus and they are beautiful. And a number, a couple of commentators that I read describe these three things as if they're like a progression. You know, he talks to him. He says of Epaphroditus, he is what? My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. And like the progression in the commentaries is I identified like kind of in ascending order of intensity. Like he's my brother because he has the same faith as me. Uh, he is my fellow worker because we share in the work of the gospel together, and he is my fellow soldier, because that brotherhood and that work in the gospel together has produced some battles, man, in, in the world, and this guy has endured through them. It has he ever, right? So you see these three beautiful things that he's described as. And uh, I like to kind of a little bit think about them, you know, one at a time. Brother... Brother, believe it or not, is not a word used as often in the New Testament as you might think. But we see brother or the similar term brethren. And, and it's a word that's used to describe the fact. It's used mostly in the male gender, but you do occasionally view sisters as well. It's all mutually easily understood. We talk about ourselves being brothers and sisters in Christ all the time. Why? Because there is a level of intimacy, there is a level of closeness, there is a level of like kind of jointly being children of the same father that is created when people together come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, though it may be the most basic thing that Paul calls Epaphroditus' brother, it's also a very beautiful thing, isn't it? There are times in the New Testament where Paul says, Beloved brethren. And he speaks to them, You are my brother that I love. When we went through some of the Old Testament prophets, there were a couple of them that we saw. I think especially Hosea and Amos. But this sort of thing came up in almost every one of them. That one of the things the prophets, when they wrote their words, one of the things they were really warning the people about was that they did things in their society like the people lied to one another, the people cheated one another, the people defrauded one another, they were even violent with one another, 
And then occasionally you would see one of the prophets say, and this you do to your brethren. Like the prophets would remind the children of Israel that they were all children of Israel. They were all the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is Israel. You're all brethren. He even rebuked the Edomites, who were the children of Esau, for treating the Israelites so badly through one of the prophets. When he said to the, when he said to the Edomites, I'm going to deal very harshly with you because you've dealt so harshly with your brother. Even though they were outside Israel, you know, they were together the children of Isaac, Esau and Jacob, right? And so the fact that, the fact that even the children of Edom had treated Israel so badly was especially egregious to the Lord because they were brethren. I'm kind of using the negative, those rebukes of the prophets, to show you, flip it over, the positive. The reason the prophets were so harsh about that was because the idea of spiritual brotherhood is so important to the Lord. And one of the most beautiful things that can be said from Christian to Christian is God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. I want to encourage you today, when you use those terms to write to each other, to text one another, to speak to each other, I want to encourage you today to do something. I want you to encourage you to be deliberate when you say those things and think about them as the words come out of your mouth. I'm not, I'm not just standing here looking at a crowd of people that go to church with me on Sunday. God, listen, God has adopted me like he's adopted you if you are in Christ. We are jointly heirs of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom and of all the promises of God jointly because God has adopted us and made us brothers and sisters. When I, when I look out on this body and when you look around at this body and you see fellow Christians, we are looking at our brethren. We are looking at our family in a very real way to God. Be careful in your treatment of one another that you remember that the person that you're speaking with, the person that you're associating with, the person that you're sharing with, if in Christ, is family. And that matters to God. And it ought to be a great blessing to you and I. The second thing that he calls him is a, a fellow worker, which is two words in English, but it's, a, it's the word synergon. It's one word in Greek. Epaphroditus is my synergon. There's a mouthful for you. How would that be for a tweet? Epaphroditus is my synergon. Tony is my boy right there. Nelson is my brother from another mother, he likes to say. Epaphroditus is my synergon. You can laugh. Please laugh. Rescue. Save me from this. But you see the word synergy there, right? Synergy may, you see the, like, like a synthesis of energy. Synergy. 
right? You put, you put your, you put your energy together for one purpose. That's the idea. Epaphroditus is my sinner, John. He's my fellow worker. We share in the work together. This is so important. Real quick. I'm running out of time. But real quick, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Here, here's what, here's how it's supposed to look. Here's what Epaphroditus was to Paul and Paul to Epaphroditus. Here's what I'm supposed to be to Tony and Tony to Hector and Hector to me and me to Nelson and Nelson to Jed and, 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 and so forth and so forth and so forth and so forth. Who then is Paul? Yeah, who else? You can have whoever that was. You, you can be in on it too. That's fine. Who was that? John? And John too. Everyone. All right. If you're in Christ. This is all of us. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers, servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. Right? Paul and Apollos are just the servants. The Lord is the one who gave each one the power to become saved. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So what are Paul and Apollos there? They're synergons. God is the one who grants the increase, but Paul and Apollos, they're not competing with each other. They're working together, right? So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. See? The planter and the waterer are one. One's not more important than the other. One's not better than the other. One's not more valuable than the other. They're one. So that's what we are. Fellow servants of God. We're one. Fellow workers. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor for what? We are God's fellow workers. There's the same word. You are God's field. You are God's building, etc. But what are we? We are fellow workers. God is the one who builds. God is the one who grants all the increase. God is the one who has all the power, right? We're taught to pray that. For the kingdom is yours. The power is all yours. The glory is all yours. Jesus taught us to pray that way, right? The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. Now and forever, right? What are we? We're just fellow workers. But it's not just fellow workers like it's some insignificant thing. Paul praises Epaphroditus for being his fellow worker. He's my brother. And then up to the next step, he's my fellow worker. But then one more thing in the progression. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. And look, he's my fellow soldier. There are all sorts of military stories you can tell about fellow soldiers and about people in the battlefield making sacrifices for one another, not leaving anybody behind, etc. and so forth, because they're fellow soldiers together. You know, it's funny, as Paul's talking about Epaphroditus, but he actually, in one of the letters that he wrote to Timothy, he used the example of a soldier. And he says to Timothy, who's a worker in the gospel, like Epaphroditus was a worker in the gospel, like you and I are supposed to be workers in the gospel, that one of the ways he describes them, he describes them as an athlete, he describes them as a hardworking farmer, and describes them as a soldier. He says, a good soldier doesn't get entangled in the things of this life. 
that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, Epaphroditus is here. Epaphroditus here is being described as someone who did not get himself entangled in this world. It's one of the chief characteristics of a good soldier of the Lord is they don't become entangled in the world. It's a challenge. We live in the world. We interact with the world. We have responsibilities in the world. We have to find that place where we're fulfilling our responsibilities and and living out responsibly the way that we should without getting entangled in it. You know, how do you know you're entangled in it? You're entangled in it when you have no heart, no spirit, no opportunity to do anything in service to the Lord. You're too tied up in the world. It could be. All right? So listen, this is one of the things that Paul is able to say about Epaphroditus. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. And he's my fellow soldier in service to the Lord. I have a few more things to say about this, but I don't want to put this, I don't want to shortchange the last point that I have when he talks about how Epaphroditus came close to death in his service to the Lord. So we'll save that for next week. But there were enough things said here today, maybe I should have stopped sooner, just because there's, there's a lot for you to chew on today and there's a lot for you to pray about today. Pray that the Lord would give you a heart, a desire to care for one another's spiritual state. Pray Listen, walk closely with God. I beg you as brothers and sisters. I encourage you as brothers and sisters. Walk closely personally with God. That out of your personal relationship with God would flow things that prove the character that he is forming in you. Remember that that brother or sister that you call brother or sister is your brother or your sister. Work hard together to support one another. And don't get so wrapped up in this world that we can't be fellow soldiers with one another for the cause of the gospel. Let's sing the last hymn together. Come on up, Amy and Ken. Close with a hymn today. Let's sing to the Lord, everybody.